As I mentioned, we're in the last week of the life of Jesus, not just simply the last week, but the last night of his life. And here's some of the most important teaching of Jesus. And as he breaks the bread and gives it to his disciples and gives them the cup and redefines this meal now around himself, he makes this ominous statement that one of them is going to betray him. And so we're going to unpack that and look at that. But before I do, let me ask you this question. Would you know greatness if you saw it? I think intuitively many of us would say, yes, of course. I I would recognize it. I don't have to necessarily define it, but I would recognize it if I was in the presence of greatness. Well, the Washington Post wanted to put this question to the test. And so they hired a musician to stand in a crowded station in, in New York City just to see what would happen in the reaction of the passers-by. And we're told this from the article. He emerged from the metro at the LaFond Plaza station and positioned himself against the wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript. A youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved T-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars and some pocket change as seed money swiveled it to face his pedestrian traffic, and began to play. It was 7.51 a.m. on Friday, January 12th, the middle of the morning rush hour. In the next 43 minutes, as the violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,097 people passed by. 27 people uh, put in money, totaling $32. Only seven stopped to listen. That leaves 1,070 people who hurried by oblivious to true greatness in their midst. What you should know about this experiment is it wasn't just any musician, but it was Joshua Bell, one of the most acclaimed and and highly trained and experts, I guess I should say, um, at the violin. And it wasn't just any violin he pulled out. It was a $3.5 million violin handcrafted by Antonio Stradivari in 1713. And as he played there, in the midst of this crowded subway station, true greatness was on display. And yet most people were oblivious to it. And so let me ask you this question. How do you measure true greatness? And would you know it if you saw it? I think most of us would want to say yes, we would know it. We see a great touchdown pass, and we're, we're, we're thrilled at that, and we're like, yes, true greatness. So we, we go to a concert, and we're moved by the music, and we're like, yes, I'm experiencing true greatness. But our passage today gives me reason to pause, because here Jesus is in the midst of them, and he's giving them this Passover meal, redefined now around him. It's something that they're going to, to do over and over again. They don't know it yet. But it's going to take on huge, significant meaning. And an argument breaks out among the disciples about who is the greatest. So we're going to call our study today, Greatness Redefined. And we're going to see Jesus not only redefine true greatness for them, but to put it on display in ways that they will never, ever forget. And so let's just unpack this a little bit more and review what we already read and to see what is going on here. Verse 19, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Let me pause there. I, I wonder what the disciples thought when Jesus said this the first time they heard these words. What does it mean that this is his body that is given for us? Verse 20, and likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is this cryptic saying that Jesus is getting at here? We talked about the meaning of this just a couple of weeks ago, and so I'm going to refer you to that study. But let's continue here as we dial in and see what's going on in response to this. Jesus says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. <laughs> I wonder if there are multiple hands and all of a sudden they just <laughs> all move their hands off the table. I don't, I don't know what's going on. That, that's a pretty good giveaway there. And Jesus says in verse 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Here Jesus gives an idea of a master plan that is working out, something that's already been prescribed for him as he walks down that path. And he says, I'm going down that path, but woe to the one by whom he is betrayed. And that word betrayed, as we read it, many of us are familiar with this story, is just part of the story. But in that moment, that would have been electrifying. What does Jesus mean that someone is about to betray him? And we're told in verse 23 that they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. Now put yourself in that position. You've gone in all in with Jesus. You've marched with him from the, his northern outpost in Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem on the high holy day of Passover, where they remember the liberation of their nation from slavery. And here Jesus is having this, this meal with them that he says he's been so eager to share with them. And now one of them, Jesus says, is about to betray him. We would have been like, whoa, what is going on here? Who is in the midst of us that is going to betray Jesus? That means one of them is a traitor. And if Jesus is going to be betrayed and handed over to the Roman government, we know what the Roman government does to those who go sideways with them. And if that happens to Jesus, what does that mean for us? And so you can imagine why they would begin to question one another. Peter, is it you? Matthew, are you the one? Who is this? And we're told by Luke that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And this is so bizarre. It would be almost comical if it wasn't, wasn't so tragic. They begin to question one another, is it you? You can imagine Peter saying, it's not going to be me. I'm going to stand with Jesus until, until the very last you're the one who always has questions. <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm kind of filling in, trying to imagine what it must have been like, but they went from questioning to one another to arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And you can imagine what Jesus might have, must have been thinking as he, as he listens to these disciples bicker among themselves as, as to who is the greatest. I mean, it'd be like you know, Steph Curry, this, this NBA all-star who set record after record for three-pointers, listening to a bunch of 12-year-olds talk about which one of them can, is the best at shooting three-pointers. I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre. Or Joshua Bell, listening to some people who've had two, lessons, or two years of lessons in, in the violin, arguing amongst them which is the greatest in his presence. It's just bizarre, right? But it's not only bizarre because of the men who are arguing about who's the greatest when true greatness is in their midst, but he's talked about this over and over again in the Gospels. In fact, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, 
we're told about at this time when Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. <laughs> so this isn't the first time they've had this little intramural dispute and squabble among themselves about who is the greatest. Pride had raised its ugly head at this moment. And we're told by Luke that Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put, them by, put him by their side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you is the one who is great. So as they're arguing with pride raising its ugly head about which one of them is the greatest, Jesus takes a child, and in that day children were to be seen but not heard from, and he puts them in the midst and says, this is greatness in your midst. Let's observe this and maybe admit it's true. Although pride is easy to see in others. It's almost impossible to see in ourselves. Although it's easy to see pride in your office or in your extended family or in the committee meeting or whatever, it's almost impossible to see it rising within us. I mean, here are the disciples who've been around Jesus, who have heard Jesus teach on this over and over again. And pride still rears its ugly head. I love what John Stott, the late Anglican minister, said. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Do you believe that, my friends? Do you believe that within your own being you carry around your your greatest enemy. That pride can rear its ugly head in your life at any given moment. Are you on guard against pride expressing itself, taking root in your heart and expressing itself at the most inopportune times? I ask you, my friends, because the disciples who've walked with Jesus, who have been in the midst of true greatness, now get in an argument about which of them is the greatest. And if they've been around Jesus, the embodiment of true greatness, for three years, and this is still happening to them, how much more so could it happen to us? Well, back to the Gospel of Luke, verse 25. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles, Gentiles are the non-Jewish nations, the kings of the nations exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He says it's, it's the way of the world for kings to exercise their lordship. They like to be in control. They like to be in authority, and they like to be called benefactors. No matter how mean they are, no matter how cruel, they take on these titles about being, being a good friend. To the people. Jesus says, This is the way of the world. In the verse 26, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leaders as the one who serves. Did you get what Jesus just said there? Let the greatest among you become as the youngest. In that culture, the youngest had the least position. You want to talk about who's the greatest? Become the least 
significant. And you want to be a leader? Become an expert in serving others. There's another place in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus gives one of those life-defining moments of his mission. And he said in that context there, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here it is, Jesus again, on another occasion, talking about greatness. And he says, if you want to be great, you must become a servant. You must become insignificant. You must deny yourself and place yourself before others in service to them. He says, look, not even I came to be served, but to serve. Back at the Gospel of, of Luke, verse 27, Jesus asks this question. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. He asks a rhetorical question here. Who is greater, the person who reclines at table and has people serving them or is it the person who serves? <laughs> the obvious answer is it's the person who reclines at table. They're the ones being served. And Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. What a powerful statement from Jesus. The greatest person who has ever lived says to them, I am among you as one who serves. It's interesting, when you read the commentaries, almost uniformly, they say it is at this moment that Jesus gets up and he puts off his outer robe, takes up a towel and a basin of water and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Luke doesn't include this in his gospel at this point for whatever reason, but we're told about this instance in the gospel of John. Jesus gets up and he takes the place of the lowest of the lowest servants and bends over and washes his disciples' feet. Now, you and I might have a little maybe visceral response and go, ooh, I wouldn't want to do something like that. But remember in that day, people walked around in sandals and it was dusty and streets were covered in manure. And so it was just one of the basic acts of hospitality that when you had someone over, the servant of the house would come and wash the feet of the guests. And so here's Jesus, their teacher, <laughs> their Lord, the greatest one who ever lived, who now humbles himself and takes their dirty, stinking feet into his hands and begins to wash them. And then he asks this question, you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not 
greater than his master. How, how sobering this must have been at this moment. For these men who are arguing about who was the greatest, to have true greatness in their midst, humble themselves and stoop to wash their feet. And Jesus says, if I've done this for you, I have left you an example that you also ought to do this for one another. You want to argue about who's the greatest? Let me see you race to be a servant to one another. So let me ask you this question. As we're following along here, what's going on? This last meal, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. They begin to question one another, and they begin to argue about who's the greatest. What's your best guess as to how Jesus is going to act toward his disciples now that they have failed miserably? You would think maybe that he would reprimand them. You would think maybe he would lecture them, castigate them. That's what I'm inclined to do. When my kids were younger and they were arguing, I just wanted to get them to stop. And so I would, I would argue with them and get them to be quiet. But that's not what Jesus does here. Look what, he's, look what he says. He says, you're those who have stayed with me in my trials. This doesn't seem very significant on one level, but, but Jesus compliments them. You guys are, are the ones who've been with me all along. He's about to go through his most severe trial. But he had the Pharisees and religious leaders setting traps for him and, and trying to, to get him to speak against Rome and to get himself in trouble. And, and these guys have been with him every step of the way. They haven't thrown in the towel. So Jesus gives them a compliment. And then he says in verse 29, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. <laughs> these guys who are arguing about who's the greatest who just had the ugliness of their heart on full display as they bickered about who was the greatest, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the kingdom just as my Father has given me the kingdom. <laughs> and the reason why is that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. These may be some, some really messed up disciples, but they're Jesus' disciples. <laughs> And he wants them to be with him. These guys who say the most stupid things sometimes. Jesus nevertheless wants to be with them. And then he says, and you're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. <laughs> These men who, who argued about who is the greatest, who've had Jesus now wash their feet, are going to be elevated into this position to share the rule of Christ. And so as you look at this, my friends, what grace is this? What kindness is this that Jesus shows? What mercy is on full display? What true greatness is on display for these men who are just bickering about which of them was the greatest? As I was, as I was just meditating on this in, in preparation for this week, I just had that song come up that we've been singing at Mercy Hill Church, Who You Say I Am, and it has this, this line in it. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but you brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Now, this song wasn't written back in the day when the disciples were arguing about this, but I wonder if, if maybe this arrested them for just a moment. 
arguing about who's the greatest, to see true greatness on display, washing my feet. And then not only that, he wants to give me his kingdom. He wants to, to bring me in to his eternal presence, that I may feast with him forever and ever. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I would like to think that they were sobered in that moment and humbled, that Jesus, when all their, their ugliness was on display for the world to see, Jesus' heart was nevertheless drawn out to them in that moment. And so, let's ask this question. Why does Luke record this account for us in his historical biography of Jesus? Why does, why does he want us to know about this argument the disciples went into? Why does he want us to know that, that Jesus, instead of castigating them, complimented them and poured grace upon grace in them? Well, he's wanting to, to display Jesus for us. And what a way to display him when it's against that backdrop of the ugliness of, of human hearts. And so I might put it something like this. If you want to know how to define greatness, look no further than Jesus Christ. If you want to know what greatness looks like on display, look no further than Jesus Christ. If you want to know what ideal a human being should strive for, look no further than the example set by Jesus Christ. It's so counterintuitive. We tend to want to toot our own horns. And Jesus says, humble yourself. We want everyone to, to know our greatness. And, and Jesus says, I want you to actually serve everyone. So let me wrap this up in just a couple points of application. I got three to be exact. Let's learn to be a little suspicious of ourselves. As we think back at how we might apply this passage to our lives, let's learn to be a little suspicious of ourselves. And the reason I say that is because what I was referring to a while ago, here were these men who had been with Jesus for three years, seeing him humble himself and welcome the out, outcasts and, and the misfits, the people that everyone else wrote off. Jesus humbly received them. They got to see Jesus over and over again talk about true greatness and, and to, to humble oneself as a way of life. They got to see this. And yet at this moment... They just, they screwed up. What if after three years of being with Jesus, humility incarnated, they began to be a little suspicious of themselves? I mean, you would think a little bit of Jesus would have worn off on them at this moment, right? And if, and if they have trouble, I wonder how much more so we do. I might be able to see pride on display in Jack's life, quicker than I can see it in mine. But what does that say about me when I can see it in someone else's life, but I'm so blind to it in my own? I came across this quote years ago that has stuck with me. The real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart. It's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. So let me ask you a question. Suppose that we're getting coffee together and I were to ask you the question, how is pride expressing itself in your life? Where is it showing up in your life? What would you say? And you might be thinking right now, mental note, do not get coffee with the pastor. <laughs> he might ask me hard questions. But let's just say right now we're having coffee together. And this is the question I posed before you. 
How is pride expressing itself in your life? Would you be able to answer that question? Are, are you in tune enough with your own heart and what's coming out of it to be able to express to me how pride is showing up in your life? Or are you blind to it? Would you struggle to answer that question because you're, you're just not sure where it's showing up? There's this great quote by Brene Brown. I've, I think I've shared this with Mercy Hill before in the past. She's this um, author and, and a podcaster. She's written a lot on shame and um, knowing our limits and, and things like that. And she said one time in a talk, we spend too much precious time and energy managing perception and creating carefully edited versions of ourselves to show to the world. Do you see yourself in that quote? We spend too much precious time and energy managing perception and creating carefully edited versions of ourselves to show to the world. I think she hits the nail right on the head. We spend a lot of energy trying to impress others, tooting our own horns, just like the disciples were in this moment. They were creating a carefully edited version of themselves for others to buy into and say, yep, yeah, you know what, you are the greatest. I remember about 20 years ago now coming across this book by Don Miller. It's, it's a book called Blue Like Jazz, and it's kind of a, a memoir of his life and his embracing of Christianity and and beginning to grow in the life of a disciple of Jesus. And he talks about one time when he went from living as a single person to, to being in an apartment with some other people, <laughs> living with some other people for the first time in a long time. And he said this. <laughs> this is what he learned about himself. Living in community made me realize one of my faults. I was addicted to myself. All I thought about was myself. The only thing I cared about was myself. I had very little concept of love, altruism, and sacrifice. I discovered that my mind is like a radio that picks up only one station, the one that plays me, K-Don, all Don, all the time. And then he went on to say this, the most difficult lie I have ever contended with is this, life is a story about me. Does that resonate with you? You feel like your mind is a radio station that plays you nonstop, that life is a story about you, life is a film about you. I mean, after all, you're in every scene, aren't you? You can't get away from yourself. When I read that, it, I, I, mean, I highlighted it, and it has stuck with me ever since. I tend to be obsessed about myself. I'm addicted to myself. I can't stop thinking about myself. And I want Jesus to work in me. <laughs> so that I stop thinking less about myself and I start thinking more of others. In fact, C.S. Lewis had this great quote where he said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Wouldn't that be great if we could just stop thinking about ourselves so much? The Apostle Paul said this, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Here he is writing to first century folk living in the city of Corinth. And he says to them, let not anyone think more highly of themselves than they ought, but rather to think with sober judgment. 
some people will hear this and say, oh, I shouldn't think more highly of myself than I ought, so then they just like, oh, I'm a worm, I'm a terrible human being, and that's not what he's saying either. Think with sober judgment. You are created in the image of God. You, you bear royalty. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been redeemed to be royalty. But that royalty that Jesus creates in us and redeems in us is a royalty that expresses itself in humble service to others. So that's the first point of application. Let's learn to be a little suspicious of ourselves. Here's the second point of application. Let's learn humility from Jesus. You would think the disciples after three years would have had this lesson learned, but they didn't. In that moment where Jesus washed their feet, he says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. That moment in which Jesus bent down to wash their feet, he says, you're not going to understand what I'm doing, but afterward, you will. What happened afterward that helped them understand the depths that Jesus was willing to go to serve them? Was it not the cross? Just shortly after this meal, they went out to a garden to pray. And there Judas, the one who had determined in his heart to betray Jesus, did so for 30 pieces of silver, brought the Roman uh, soldiers to the place where Jesus was praying, kissed Jesus on the lip, on the, on the cheek. And they arrested him, put them through this, this illegal trial in the middle of the night bound him, beat him within an inch of his life, made him carry a rugged cross to a place called Golgotha, where they nailed him to a tree. And when the worst of humanity was doing the best they could to humiliate and denigrate and end the life of the most humble person who has ever lived, God was at work in that moment, doing something utterly amazing, which is condemning in the flesh of Jesus our sins. And in that moment, we're told that Jesus did not stop being a servant to those disciples and a servant to you and to me. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Philippians. We, we know this verse because we refer to it often. He made himself nothing. Jesus, the greatest human who has ever lived, the one who had every right to be honored and to be dignified and to be worshipped, made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, they had no idea what he was doing other than this was extremely out of place according to their thinking. But he says, afterwards, you're going to know what this meant. And afterwards, Jesus became nothing for you. We're told that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What an interesting description of our native bent. 
People who live for themselves. Do you recognize yourself in that description? Jesus died for all. That when we embrace him, when we receive the forgiveness of our sins, when we are reconciled to God, welcomed into the eternal life that he gives, that has a transformative effect on us so that we no longer want to live for ourselves, but we live for someone else. That one who made himself nothing, taking our sins upon himself. A handful of years ago, I made this, I had this light bulb moment go off. I want to try and say this the wrong way. I had a light bulb moment. This moment when the light went off in my eyes, in my life. And this thought came to me, if, if God wants to make me more like Jesus, he can't do that without dealing with my pride and working a deep humility within me. I mean, he just can't make you like Jesus unless he works a deep humility within you. Jesus says, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. My friends, the longer you follow Jesus, the more gentle and humble in heart you should become. Jesus taught many things over the years, but at one point in particular, he says, I want you to learn this from me. I want you to become gentle and humble in heart like I am. My friends, are you learning that from Jesus? Are you, are you more gentle and humble now than you were a year ago in your journey of following Christ? I think I've asked this question before here because this is not the first time in the Gospel of Luke that we've been forced to ask the question of about ourselves about pride and humility at work in our life. Do you ever pray for humility? If Jesus wants you to become humble like he is, and if God can't make you like Jesus without working a deep humility within you, is this a priority in your life? Is this something that, that you want God to work in your life? I've been asking people this question more and more. <laughs> and, and I've seen that, that for many people, our, our knee-jerk reaction is like, I can't pray that prayer because <laughs> I know that God's going to humble me if I do. <clears throat> but my friends, do you see if, if, if we're so prideful we can't pray for humility, do you see what a big target that is in our life that needs to be dealt with? If we can't trust our Father's heart and the heart of Jesus to work humility within us, then what can we trust him for? <laughs> when I have this conversation with people and they, they're hesitant to say, I, yeah, I want to pray for humility, I say to them, there's two ways we can go about this. One of them is much less painful than the other. <laughs> One way is that we can humble ourselves. That's the least painful way. The more painful way is when God has to humble us. So my friends, let me ask you this question. Will you pray for humility? Do you see that, that like the disciples, you have this tendency within you to think more highly of yourself than you ought? That you too make carefully edited versions of yourselves to show the world so people will think more highly of you than they ought? I'm not saying you shouldn't be thought of highly. I think highly of you all. But I don't want you and I don't want me thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And the way that looks in our life is when we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, 
we cease serving others. It's not in our hearts. Our heart doesn't beat that way. And so we had this, this verse from Psalm 139 early in our service. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. What a great prayer. What an what a honest prayer. What a, what a heartfelt prayer. I wonder if we might be able to t- take this and just tweak it a little bit and say something like this. Search me, O God, and know my prideful heart. Test me and know my prideful thoughts. Point out any place of pride in me that offends you and lead me along the path of humility and everlasting life. Can we pray something like that? What's stopping you from humbling yourself before the Lord asking this? We're given every reason to do so. (laughs) For example, what James, the brother of Jesus, says, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So not only are we encouraged to humble ourselves, not only can we ask for humility, but we're told that when we do so, we're given grace. What a a wonderful answer to that prayer. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'll probably keep saying this to you. The pursuit of humility is not an elective in the school of following Christ. It is more like the prerequisite to kindergarten. We cannot get very far in the Christian life if we are full of pride. My friends, you know it. When you see pride expressing itself in people who follow Jesus, it's just ugly, isn't it? I see a lot of it in our culture right now, especially on social media. Christians say some of the craziest things, and you see pride pouring out, and it's so foreign to the one that they say they claim to follow. So that was our first point of application. Let's learn to be a little suspicious of ourselves. The second one was, <coughs> excuse me, let's learn humility from Jesus. And here's the third and final one. Let's follow in the footsteps of our humble Savior. Do you remember what Jesus said? I am among you as one who serves. What if this was a banner over our lives? With our families and our workplaces, and those places where we serve in the community, what if this was a banner over us, these words of Jesus? I am among you as one who serves. What if, what if people looked at you and, and saw you as a follower of Jesus and say, you know what, I don't, I don't necessarily believe everything that person believes, and I don't necessarily agree with their ethics on this thing, but, but that person, <laughs> I don't know of anyone who's a greater servant than him. I just want to highlight one thing for you. Not only did Jesus wash the feet of his disciples, but he also washed the feet of Judas, knowing that Judas was just about to betray him. Here's a man that Jesus has poured three years of his life into. He knows that Judas is about to betray him, and yet he still humbles himself and places him before himself before the feet of this man who's going to betray him, and he washes his feet. I don't know about you, but if I was Jesus in that moment, I just would have skipped Judas. <laughs> I would have looked at him and said, you know what you're going to do? Go. But Jesus washed 
his feet. So my friends, this challenges me. I don't know if it challenges you. I think naturally I could wash the feet of my family. (laughs) If I had to, I'd probably wash your feet too. But to wash the feet of someone who betrayed me, someone who has positioned themselves as my enemy, I don't think I could do that. And yet, Jesus humbled himself, making himself nothing, and bowed before Judas and served him by washing his feet. I came across a few pieces of art on Instagram. I just wanted to put them up in front of you. I don't know how well you can see this or not. But in this picture, on your left side, is a picture of Jesus washing the feet of a woman who has a sign, not your body, not your choice. And there's another picture of Jesus washing the feet of a person holding the sign, Roe has got to go. I just want to put this before you and, and ask you to consider what is it, what, what, what might it look like for you to wash the feet of those you disagree with politically? <laughs> I saw these and then I saw two more pictures this artist had painted. One of Jesus washing the feet of President Joe Biden and one of Jesus washing the feet of former President Donald Trump. And then she has this other piece of art that asks the question, you already know who you need to see on that seat. But let me just ask you the question. Who, in a a sense, do you need to put before you to wash your feet, to wash their feet? Jesus has a special place for the misfits and outcasts of this world. He has a a special place for those who are far from him. And if Jesus can make himself nothing and wash the feet of Judas, what would it look like for you and me to humble ourselves and to wash the feet of those people we would rather have nothing to do with? So here's the final question. (laughs) Who can I serve this week? Get creative. Life is about serving others. That's because life is about loving others. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, it's to love the Lord your God with everything you've got and your neighbor as yourself. And love takes the form of service. So let me ask you this question as we're processing this right now together. Who in your life can you serve by metaphorically washing their feet this week. Jesus has washed your feet. He has shed his blood to make you whole and clean. Now to follow in his footsteps, he's not asking us to shed our blood, but he is asking us to humble ourselves, to take the form of a servant, and to wash the feet of others. Your family, your friends at church, and even those who would not want you to do it. Let's follow in the footsteps of Jesus, my friends. 
Mercy Hill Church, may your lives be defined by true greatness as redefined and displayed by Jesus, the great servant of servants. Amen.